You walk into a Las Vegas casino. To your left, the poker tables. You can hear the players fiddling with their chips as the cards are flopped. To your right, the roulette wheel, with people sat around hoping one spin of the wheel can change their life. And to the back, the unmistakable siren songs of the slot machines, beckoning visitors to come and be the next lucky winner. You're not here for these luck-based games. You've spent your money to come here to compete in the more strategic games of the weekend for the World Series of board games. The games that include Wingspan, Tick to Ride, and Dune Imperium. The games that include forward planning and engine building, and don't include the amount of randomness seen on the roulette table. Because randomness is evil in games, right? Randomness in games, whether at the Hold'em table or in the game of Catan, is one of the most debated topics in gaming. Should it be minimized? gotten rid of entirely, because it can be infuriating and even <gasps> lead to the lesser player winning. Is there such a thing as good randomness? Welcome to the Board Game Dojo, where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. Today, we will be exploring the concept of randomness, what it is, how it can be used effectively, and how it can affect players' experiences of the game. To do this, we will be using the roguelike deck-building game Slay the Spire as our case study. Releasing for early access in 2017 and officially on Steam in 2019, it reached over 1.5 million copies sold by the end of its first official launch year. And last week, at the time of recording, a crowdfunding campaign for its board game implementation was launched, successfully funding in six minutes and surpassing the million dollar mark on its first day. But it includes so much randomness. Why is it successful when other games fail, inducing rage in its players? Let's take a look, but first, we need to define some terms. Randomness is a tricky topic to talk about, not only because it's controversial, but because people use the term to mean different things. They may say random when they mean uncertain, and on today's episode, we are going to differentiate between the two. Randomness comes in two forms, as proposed by Jeff Inkelstein, a successful board game designer, podcast host, and author of Game Tech. These two forms are input randomness and output randomness. Output randomness is when you take an action, but you don't know what's going to happen. Think about the game of Risk, when you might go into a battle with the odds in your favor, but you never know what the dice will do. Input randomness is when things are set up by the game for you in a random fashion, and once they're set up, you can deal with them. Think of a deck builder, whether it be Slay the Spire or Dominion. The cards you draw are random, and depending on what you've drawn, you need to form a strategy. This would also be true for games like Yokohama, where the initial setup of the board, technologies, and contracts are random, and you need to strategize the early game based on them. We need to differentiate between these kinds of randomness, well, really the concept of randomness, and uncertainty. Uncertainty just means that the next thing is unknowable, whether it's another player or the result of the dice. Think of the difference between Viticulture, Agricola, and Kalos. All three are worker placement games, but there are some differences of what happens after you throw down your precious worker. In Agricola, you put your worker down and you know what you're getting, like wood. In Viticulture, there are some spaces that have a knowable entity, like coins but there are also many that you don't know if they'll be helpful or not, like a couple of objective cards or some new grapes. The cards you draw are random. 
But in Kalis, the result is uncertain. It's a risky endeavor because you put your worker down, but you don't know where that provost is going to go. It's not a random placement. It's an uncertainty. I like the way Ryan Sturm said it. There's no game if there's no uncertainty, but there are games where there is no randomness. Randomness and uncertainty, input randomness and output randomness, these are part of a designer's toolkit. They can shape the experience of the player and differentiate their kind of game from others. Take, for example, some of the early war games. We will fully cover the history of war games in a future episode, but one of the catalysts in its development was the addition of dice. Chess was seen as too unlike real war, so war game designers decided to introduce dice into the games to make the games more lifelike. Whether it represented the fog of war, soldiers being untrained, whatever it was, the dice were supposed to introduce randomness, the unforeseeable. From there, shooters and strategy games have gone on either end of the randomness spectrum. Games like XCOM developed an output randomness system that shows a percentage chance of hitting the target from different positions. Do you go out in the open, but you have a 100% chance of hitting your target? Or do you keep cover and risk a 50% chance of hitting, but a 50% chance of missing? Games like Into the Breach have gone more towards input randomness, allowing players to react to random variables by allowing them to know exactly what the enemy would do if the player doesn't react to them. The movement is random, but the players are then allowed to know the movement beforehand and try to strategize how to respond. So when developing a game, one has to choose the kind of experience that goes with the game. What should the players experience when they play? And this was an early question and a lingering problem in the development of Slade Aspire, a problem that kept the game in playtesting for years. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's explain what Slay the Spire is. Slay the Spire is a mix of two big genres in gaming, roguelike and deck building. Roguelike stems from the 1980 game Rogue, which had permadeath, meaning if you died on your way to the goal, which in that game was retrieving an artifact, you had to restart from the beginning with nothing. From there, we saw a splintering off, and nowadays we have roguelike and roguelite, which are often used interchangeably but are technically different. The first meeting of the International Roguelike Development Conference took place in 2008 in Berlin, Germany, which is where the initial definition of what constitutes a roguelike game was ironed out, and this is called the Berlin Interpretation. I say this simply because Slay the Spire is technically considered a roguelite, which is important in our discussion today. And I'm a nerd, so I like finding out about this stuff. Look up the Berlin Interpretation, and you'll find all sorts of discussions about some of the most popular games of the last decade. Where was I? Oh right, our episode topic. Slay the Spire is a roguelite, with strategic planning, randomly generated levels, and the important part, it doesn't have permadeath. We'll get to this important detail later. It combines this with deck building, a genre in which you start the game with a deck of cards that are just okay. And throughout the game, you'll acquire better cards to put in your deck and hopefully get rid of the just okay cards so that you're just drawing good, powerful cards. In Slay the Spire, you start with five basic attack cards and five basic defense cards. And throughout the game, you'll pick up relics that enhance your power, as well as better cards, as you encounter elites and other events on your path to glory. The main thing you'll be doing is fighting enemies. You'll have a hand of cards, and depending on your stats, you'll have different amounts of energy you can use. Different cards use different amounts of energy to play, so you need to be careful and choose wisely. It is this system, this interaction between monsters and the player, that was one of the main problems in the development of the game. In their interview for the Ars Technica series War Stories, creators Casey Yano and Anthony Giovanetti discuss this development phase. 
At first, the player would do what they thought was the best play, and then the monster would choose from a random pool of moves and respond, and this would go back and forth. This is the more output random style of game, as the player would choose something without knowing exactly if it would work. But this left the players, at this point being playtesters, with the inability to plan and left them feeling unable to really have an effect on the luck itself. So they reprogrammed the game, introducing what they called the next move system, in which players would be able to scroll over and find out what each enemy was going to do. They also used the opportunity to throw in jokes into this description. What this enabled players to do was plan what the best course of action was, sliding this from an output random game to a more input random interaction. But this wasn't what they wanted either, as this was a bit of a burden on casual players who just wanted to play a quick game, not be bogged down in analysis. Furthermore, it was a pain to stream, and because there was so much information, it was hard to remember exactly what was going to happen. And that was when they finally came up with the system they use to this day, the Intense System. The way that the Intense System differentiated itself from the earlier iterations of the game is the Intense System used an icon that would go above the head of the enemies to denote what they were about to do. They could be attacking, blocking, or even buffing themselves out to prepare for a next move. And these icons could quickly share how much damage was about to be in an attack too, like a dagger denoting a not very powerful attack, or an axe being a devastating one. And just like that, the amount of numbers and text was reduced drastically, meaning both casual players and fans alike could gain useful information to help them figure out what was their best for their turn. No more scrolling over enemies, reading chunks of text, just a clean, easy to understand interface. And what this did was put all the randomness before the player's turn so that the player could know what effect they would have on the enemy. Okay, the enemy is going to attack me, so how can I block it? Okay, the enemy is just buffing itself, so I can now attack. Some of these monsters would be programmed to do certain actions at certain times, like summoning minions if their original minions were already killed in battle, but some are just random. But because the randomness was put before the player's turn, and the player had time to respond, the playtesters much preferred the style of randomness. And this brings up two important concepts when talking about randomness in games, players' perceptions of controllability and player frustration at randomness. Let's start with the perceptions of controllability, and we need to make one thing really clear. Humans suck at internalizing percentages and odds. We just instinctively are bad at it. Let me give you an example. I will give you $100 if I flip this coin, and three quarters of the time it lands on heads. Before we begin, I'll let you choose how many times I flip this coin, but the ratio doesn't change. You can choose 3 heads out of 4, 6 out of 8, or 12 out of 16. What would you choose? I walked around the neighborhood both because I needed the fresh air and also because I wanted to know what people would choose. Some said they didn't care, they were all the same odds, 3 out of 4. Some said 12 out of 16 because they get more chances, and still some said 3 out of 4. One person said 6 out of 8, but for no reason in particular. If anything, it shows that the people in my dis direct area <laughs> If anything, it shows that the people in my direct area don't really have a sense for it, which is the point. You should choose 3 out of 4, and the choice isn't close. The chance you have of winning $100 on 4 flips is 31%, whereas the chance you have of winning $100 on 16 flips is 4%. This is because, as you have more of something like flips of the coin or rolls of the dice, the results will start to skew more towards being a bell curve. So if we flip a coin, we would theoretically expect it to roughly be 50-50. With, <clears throat> with less flips, you have more of a chance at being 75-25 or 100-nothing. 
With more flips, it starts to average itself out. Maybe you get three straight heads, but then you get four straight tails. At a moment, it seemed way towards heads. You could have won $100, but later it seemed more even. I'm not saying it to sound high and mighty, I didn't even know this until I read Game Tech for this episode, but what it shows is that people sometimes do expect a sense of predictability, even in random circumstances. It's the reason that some games fudge their numbers, like Fire Emblem, where it changes the attack success percentage to be lower so that players aren't disappointed if it misses. For example, one attack might have an actual success rate of 99%, but the game will say 90% because players generally think that for every 10 attacks they do of it, there will always be one failure. One thing designers decide on is how players deal with that randomness, whether it's a percentage of success or their chances of drawing the card they need. Like Fire Emblem, some fudge numbers, but for others, they lay it more out in gameplay. Adam Millard of the Architect of Games YouTube channel theorizes that more than just input and output randomness, games can be further divided into more of a matrix, with input and output on one side, and what he calls reactable versus controllable on the other side. So you can have a reactable input randomness, or a controllable output. Controllable randomness would be something you can manipulate, a randomness that is still random but has ways in which the players themselves can affect certain percentages. Reactable randomness allows the players to do something about the randomness before the randomness does them in. Let's start with reactable randomness, which is pretty common with input randomness. Spirit Island is a game that has been very successful and oddly enough also has a crowdfunding campaign going right now. In it, you are controlling spirits trying to ward off invaders who are trying to take over the inhabitants island that worship you. It's a great game, by the way. It's definitely top 20 for me. One of the things that make it such a deliciously interesting game is that each spirit has different powers that work together in different ways. Some good at wiping out invaders, some good at moving invaders, but what makes it fun is working together to, for example, move invaders by the ocean and then have the ocean spirit swallow them up. This is called synergy, and when it happens, it releases endorphins, the feel-good chemicals in your brain. Maybe because you feel like you just did something cool with your friends, or maybe because you feel like you did something amazing that broke the game, or maybe both. But the invaders want to damage the land, and they move around, so pulling this off is difficult. But one thing the designer R. Eric Royce did was set up a system in which you know which area the invaders will move to or settle next. The top card will be drawn, and then the other cards will move down the line, with the further lines being much worse. So you have the ability to take a turn to strategize how to get rid of those new invaders, possibly needing to move your spirits, your people, and figure out a plan. The randomness and the ability for people to react to it allows for people to feel that sense of synergy. It allows for them to figure out if they can synergize, how to do it, and how to make their hard work pay off. Slay the Spire does something similar with the intent system. By randomizing what the enemy will do and then showing the player before the player takes their turn, it allows the player to react to it. And in the same way, the player can synergize with what they've been given. Maybe they have a relic that makes their attacks more powerful, or maybe they have a great jaw that will allow them to withstand the next ferocious attack. While yes, the card draw can definitely affect the player's turn, the reactability gives the player a sense of control, that they can maybe figure out the next best move. On the other hand, you have controllability, the idea that people can manipulate the game in a way to mitigate their luck. One example of this would be in something like The Resistance, a game in which you have some players as the Resistance and some as the Spies. But by adding or subtracting the amount of people who are the bad guys, you are changing the odds of the game. Sometimes you'll see social deduction games like this have differing amounts of bad guys based on the difficulty level you want for certain teams. But the best example of this, I think, is in deck building games like Slay the Spire. 
Sure, you may be drawing cards randomly, but by crafting your deck, choosing cards along the way that will work well with other parts of your deck, and getting rid of cards that aren't as good, you can increase the chances of you drawing cards that will advance you in the game. In conjunction with the ability to react to moves that the enemy will make, this control ability gives the players an overall feeling of controlling, or at least mitigating, the randomness at hand. And what this does is raise the randomness tolerance of the average player. That is, because players can feel like they have more ways of controlling luck, rather by building a better deck to be better prepared, or by being able to react to whatever the enemy is about to do, they are able to better accept that random crazy stuff might just happen. And this leads us into the other point. Player Frustration RNG stands for Random Number Generator, and is used online to talk about the random BS that can happen in games. And depending on the game, the amount people can tolerate the randomness is different. We talked about that people feeling like they can control the randomness is one thing that can affect it, but another is the expected experience. How much randomness is someone willing to tolerate because it's par for the course, rather than something they didn't expect? There is a concept in gaming called the Magic Circle, which was first popularized by Eric Zimmerman and Katie Salen in 2003. And the idea is that we, in an almost magical way, enter into a game world that has its own rules, characters, and interactions that is different than our own. It can be suddenly thinking carjacking is okay in Grand Theft Auto, but it can also just be a different set of rules. I think Uno is the best example, because it seems like everyone plays that game a little differently, to the point that the official Uno account has had to come out and tweet rules clarifications, and still people debate them. You might enter a magic circle when you go over to your in-law's house, and in that magic circle, you can just continually stack plus fours until someone has to draw 16. When you leave the circle, you know that that's wrong, but in that magic circle, it's right. This magic circle, I believe, also extends to the expectations and games and genres of them, and the player's tolerance of randomness is directly impacted by this magic circle. Say that you have a Euro game. It's beige, it's dusty, it's got a picture of a farm on it. You know the kind. The whole point of the Euro was to move away from output randomness into input randomness. So if you suddenly get a game that advertises itself as a Euro, and you're 50% of the way done with the game, and suddenly the success of your game depends on one roll of the dice, the player might be pretty frustrated if it doesn't work out. It violates the magic circle. It violates what that game was supposed to be, the rules of the genre per se. Slay the Spire tries to use player expectations of the genre, and simultaneously, by somewhat violating the rule of the genre of roguelike, it saves players from some of their frustration. Like I mentioned earlier, roguelikes have permadeath. You die. You start from nothing back in the beginning. But what Slay the Spire does is actually pretty smart. Another thing that is common in the roguelike roguelite genre is speedrunning, and many of the best speedrunners just restart again and again and again until they get just the right setup. Well, Slay the Spire didn't want that. They also didn't want players who had played for an hour, the average time to get through a spire, and then die and have to start from scratch. Although some had that expectation, many people who were being attracted into the genre by this game did not, and the RNG was high. So they developed a fix, the Guardian. The Guardian would allow the player to keep some of the items, but only if they had reached a certain point the run through before. This not only served the function of keeping some progression, raising the floor and relieving the insane frustration of playing for a while and all of it being wiped away, but it also encouraged players to try their best with what they were given. Even in the worst luck, they should try to see if they can manipulate it to come up with something interesting. It encouraged exploration, and it encouraged players to sharpen their skills. Even if they lost, they still saw progression by acquiring things they could keep with their character, but they also saw themselves progress in their overall skill in the game, most notably improvisation. Randomness is not a con, it's part of the beauty of the game. 
The same can be said in tabletop RPGs. The randomness, the fact that the progress of the mission can come down to a roll of the dice, it's not particularly bad. Even a failure makes the story unique. It makes your team's mission, the friends you meet, the characters you seduce, the pets you gain, the enemies you defeat, it makes it yours. Games like Disco Elysium encourage you to try, fail, both of them randomly, so that your story is yours. You may or may not meet different people, reveal different parts of the story, become someone different. Again, it's the expectation of the game. The reason it's not insanely annoying is that both of these are narrative first. It's not about solely the success or failures, it's the journey of playing the game. And that's how we get to the final point of today's episode, how randomness creates a story. One of my recent obsessions is Civ VI, a game in which you take the control of an empire and try to dominate the world. However, the game kind of takes a while to load, and that's because each time you start over, the land is shaped differently. You'll start somewhere different, you'll have different resources, and based on those resources that are immediately accessible to you, you'll need to craft your strategy, including possibly making friends or going to war with the empires who have the resources you want. If the map remained static, if the resources weren't random, it would lead to a very boring game that didn't encourage interaction. It wouldn't be worth revisiting because I could just do the same thing over and over again. But instead, I am, each time, creating a different story with my empire. Even if I'm playing with the same leader with the same special power, I cannot use that skill exactly the same way two straight games. The randomness literally creates a story. Randomness can also make the game harder for some while simultaneously being more welcoming for others. The most obvious example would be Mario Kart, which, without even trying to hide it, gives the better power-ups to the players who are behind, while giving the not-so-helpful power-ups to those in front. The great power-ups can be Bullet Bill, the infamous Blue Shell, or a squid that somewhat blinds everyone in front of that power-up user. As the race progresses, the field gets narrower, and a last-minute comeback can never be ruled out. Both of these games use randomness to create interaction between the players. There are modes that you can play player versus player or player versus computer, and both of these games have expectations that some may be luckier than others. But they tell different stories, one using randomness to force even the most strategic player to improvise, the other using randomness to provide more narrow, exciting victories. They bring people coming back for different reasons, but the randomness is part of that reason. Slay the Spire is no different. The randomness both sows chaos, but also gives a reason for people to come back. Randomness is something to harness in their game to make every run unique and keep people coming back, but it is also something to allow players to control by keeping some progression and using deck building. And maybe, just maybe like Mario Kart, the game can give you some better luck when doing bad, so you can feel the taste of a narrow victory like a come-from-behind victory in Mario Kart. And this, like someone new to the game winning in Mario Kart, can give you confidence to come back. It'll lead you to feel less frustrated because you had some good luck when you needed it most, it uses both input and output randomness, giving you both the ability to strategize and yet be surprised and give you something to react to. Slay the Spire is a masterclass on how to use randomness to the best of one's ability. Randomness doesn't have to be evil or annoying. It can be a tool to tell a story, to keep people coming back, and to provide a rush of endorphins as someone pulls off an amazing feat. So enjoy your euros, your roulette tables, and your deck-building roguelites. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a five-star review and check us out on YouTube as well. Take care, everyone. Janne.